Hello. I'm trying to make you feel like you're at the spa. <laughs> Welcome back to the Canadian Farmer. This podcast reflects my personal opinions, views, and my own interpretation of information and was prepared in my personal capacity. This podcast does not represent any institution, corporation, association, or society, just me. So here's a relevant topic. We're going to talk about anxiety. Highly underdiagnosed and undertreated, anxiety is something that many of us have experienced to varying degrees throughout our lives. People who suffer with both anxiety and COPD or asthma are likely to be especially concerned because the coronavirus manifests in the respiratory system. However, anxiety also tends to be more prevalent in people with hypertension, gastrointestinal disease, arthritis, migraine, and allergic conditions. And not everyone has been diagnosed. Family history is a good predictor, but anxiety has other roots too. Medications, medical conditions can cause or worsen the condition. Hyperthyroidism, for example. Generalized anxiety is only one of many diagnoses. The Canadian Clinical Practice Guidelines for the Management of Anxiety, Post-Traumatic Stress, and OCD provide recommendations for all the different forms of anxiety. Like medication, cognitive behavioral therapy has shown significant effectiveness in the treatment of anxiety, and this doesn't necessarily mean one-on-one therapy sessions. Independent therapy is also beneficial and shown to have similar or equivalent efficacy for the treatment of most anxiety disorders. So what is that? Well, independent CBT is available through books, internet programs, and virtual care. And a lot of people have a lot of free time. So this might be a productive way to use it. So the reason I decided on this for the podcast was because of a disturbing phone call I received at work a couple of weeks ago. The woman calling had a history of anxiety and is a patient at my pharmacy I say patient as though we're acquaintances, but in reality, I know intimate details about her and how she struggled over the past 10 years. Beginning to take medication was really hard for her, as it is for a lot of people. She had a lot of anxiety about the possible side effects, and that was almost as overwhelming as the panic the medication was meant to treat. But she improved. In her opinion, slightly. In my opinion, it's been remarkable. So she calls the pharmacy to ask a question. I can't even remember now what the question was. To ask a question wasn't really why she called, and we both knew that. She called because she was unraveling. I have never felt more useful than after I hung up the phone that day. In a state of desperation, hardly able to draw breath, and completely panicked to the point of tears, she called me. She wanted me to help her unbelieve the poisonous truths she was now convinced were inevitable. Unlike her concerns about rare adverse effects of her medication, this time was much more difficult to talk her down. Before, when I could quickly identify the untruths in her thinking and help her to be rational. But this time, her beliefs weren't as easy to filter. How do you tell someone not to panic? when the entire world is in crisis? How do you convince someone to be calm when you feel uneasy? And how can you lie and say that it's not that bad 
when this time kind of is. This pandemic is a living nightmare for us all, but for some people, it is simply validation that the hellish scenes they rehearse in their mind, the irrational fears that we coax them to ignore, maybe aren't so irrational at all. Had she called me a few months ago and told me she was scared of a deadly worldwide virus, an invisible killer that would separate her from the rest of the world, I would have reassured her that it was extremely unlikely in fact, nearly impossible. So you know what I told her? The same thing I keep telling myself. That we have the luxury of knowing the threat is here. When many times in life, we're unaware. Most people won't become ill. Although the numbers are high, it represents a small percentage of the population. And of those who are ill, it's not a death sentence. Most recover. And we're armed with the knowledge on how to minimize our risk. Measures that have never been seen before. But beyond these things, the truth is, we have no control. She was really liking what I had to say in the beginning. You have control. You are aware. You have control. Wash your hands. And then the comfort subsided when I addressed the fact that our control ends here. Accepting the latter is the challenge because most of the time... We are delusional in thinking we aren't vulnerable each and every day. The realization that terrible things can happen is upsetting, and in the midst of our normally busy lives, we can easily distract ourselves from scary scenarios. To be vulnerable and know it is a lot to deal with, but most of us can manage most of the time. The question she really wanted the answer to is how to be vulnerable and own it. To own vulnerability means we need to accept that we aren't in control and to shift our focus to more on what we have authority over and less on what we don't. When you talk to yourself in your head, the tendency to exaggerate, generalize, and extrapolate leads to anxiety. If we can shift our thinking to thoughts that are rational, accurate, and relevant, anxiety lessons. So here's a thought. The whole world is shut down and I'm going to go broke. Okay, I think that would be pretty fair for some people, most people. Um, So exaggeration. Yes, there is a pandemic, but everyone in the entire world is not infected. So the whole world is not shut down. Generalization and inaccuracy. Okay, your finances may be impacted, but there are ways to minimize spending for now and this situation is temporary. Work will eventually resume. You get the idea. It's not about being naive. It's about being on guard for thoughts that set this anxious wheel in motion. Unfortunately, for my patient, Jesus didn't take the wheel. So I recommended that she take her clonazepam prescription and referred her to her physician to reassess her treatment plan. In the coming weeks, she may require more of her PRN clonazepam than she did in the past, and that's okay. So what's the point of all this? As a pharmacist, why do you need to know about my phone call? Well, I think you need to know for a couple of reasons. Number one, this pandemic will be a trigger for many people, and being the voice of reason will likely be put on your to-do list. So we want to be ready. And number two... 
People who suffer with anxiety attempt suicide 1.7 to 2.5 times more often than those who don't. Health Canada also warns about the increased risk of suicide with some antidepressants, especially in children and adolescents. So while a lot of other healthcare providers focus on the pandemic, many people will turn to you and they may be at risk of death just as much as those in the ICU. So just consider the circumstances when someone reaches out to you for help and try to remember that people ask for help in the strangest ways. One of the biggest opportunities to help is when you're asked to fill a benzodiazepine early. Think about what is really being asked of you. With so much on your mind and with everything changing day by day, it would be easy to dismiss someone who really needs you. Because you are a respected healthcare professional, when you say what you are feeling is normal, it goes a long way. It's tempting to excuse yourself from responsibilities around benzodiazepine use, to generalize and say, I can only fill it when it's due, or there's nothing I can do, I don't feel comfortable or I don't have enough information, then get it. What do you need to make you comfortable? What information do you need to make a decision? Get it. I'll give you an example. Okay, so hear me out. The phone rings, a pharmacy assistant answers, listens briefly, and then places the call on hold. Pharmacist, the woman on the phone says she needs her diazepam filled today. Pharmacist asks, when is it due? The assistant replies, in four days. The answer comes instantly. No, tell her we cannot. She needs to call the doctor to get permission. Now, same woman, same call, but another pharmacist. A Canadian farmer is on duty today, and he picks up the phone. He learns that the woman uses diazepam to control anxiety and panic attacks, and normally... 30 tablets can last her up to a year. 24 days ago, she filled her prescription after visiting her doctor. She made the appointment because she was worried that her anxiety would get worse. Her mother is in the hospital. There is a worldwide pandemic and she isn't allowed to see her. In the past week, her mother's condition has gotten a lot worse and she's unlikely to recover. Now considered palliative. With so much stress, she is having panic attacks more often. She tells you that she isn't completely out of diazepam. She has one tablet left, but she's terrified to use it, and she's completely distraught. So the pharmacist makes a decision as to the best course of action. Whatever is decided isn't right or wrong, but it's informed. He could fill her prescription today, he could fill it tomorrow or the day it should be due, he could dispense some medication but not an entire refill, he could refer her to urgent care, and so on. The point is, his decision is individualized to his patient, and it's in her best interest. Okay, now I'm going to stir the pot a little. Let's talk about benzo some more. As soon as I say it, be honest, what are your thoughts, benzodiazepines? They're bad. They're addictive. We have to shut it down. We must police the distribution. Am I wrong? Is this basically what you think? Because that's what I thought. As soon as I graduated, I learned pretty quickly that the public were manipulative when it came to targeted and controlled drugs and that I needed to be on guard. 
Now, not so much. Don't get me wrong. I've been burned a few times. There was one woman on morphine. She took it for years and years. And her doctor called one afternoon and told me to cancel her prescription and not to fill it anymore. So I was upset. I couldn't understand why there wasn't an alternative or a plan to taper. What were we going to do? And I told the doctor what I thought. So the doctor explains to me that she had done a blood test on her patient and there were no opioids in her system at all. She confronted the patient and learned that she hadn't been taking it. She was selling it instead. I'm sure you've got dandy stories of your own and these things are going to happen. We know that targeted and controlled drugs should be administered with caution. I don't think anybody would argue that. But we can't forget that these drugs have a place in treatment. Here is some information that can help to balance our appraisal of benzodiazepine use along with individual circumstances of our patient. These are some key points from an article in the Expert Review of Neurotherapeutics the article's from 2014, and it's really to the point. The title is The Reappraisal of Benzodiazepines in the Treatment of Anxiety and Related Disorders. Okay, first one. It appears that some second-generation antipsychotics, especially quetiapine, are prescribed for anxiety and related disorders to, av- to avoid using benzodiazepines. Clinicians should be cautious about this practice as there is no evidence that quetiapine is at least as safe and effective as long-term use of benzodiazepines. Here's another one. The likely reason for the ongoing popularity of benzodiazepines include their consistent and reliable effectiveness for the most prominent symptoms of anxiety, their relatively good tolerability, the quick onset of action, and the possibility of using them on an as-needed basis. Okay, the benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome is not an inevitable consequence of long-term benzodiazepine use. While an effort should be made to prevent withdrawal symptoms, it is not good clinical practice to portray the benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome in a catastrophic manner because it intimidates patients and veers them towards treatment options that are not necessarily safer or more suitable. In the absence of substance use disorders, the risk of addiction to benzodiazepines during long-term treatment of anxiety and related disorders has been exaggerated. The pharmacological dependence that develops when benzodiazepines are used long-term does not denote an all-encompassing preoccupation with and craving for benzodiazepines. Compulsive or uncontrollable benzodiazepine-seeking behavior and adverse health and or social consequences. Again, let me be clear. I am not dismissing the risks that are associated with benzodiazepine use. They are very real, especially when combined with other CNS depressants. However, in my experience, our profession hasn't been adequately cognizant of the benefits of these medications. Imagine the relief the medication would bring to someone in crisis. Maybe you don't have to imagine. Maybe with the already overwhelming job you do every day, along with life's responsibilities and challenges, topped with a pandemic through which you are pioneering, maybe you know anxiety all too well. 
And if you do, you should know that I do too. It's normal to feel this way sometimes. And if it's a burden that's become heavy, don't wait any longer to do something about it. You can call your employee assistant program, your telehealth provider, your family physician or nurse practitioner, or maybe a fellow farmer. They'll make sure you get what you need. Now, for a few quick facts about anxiety medication, we'll do true or false. So true or false, all of the SSRIs, out of all of the SSRIs, okay, that's better. Out of all of the SSRIs, fluoxetine is the most stimulating and not associated with sedation. True. Okay, the next one is, as the dose of venlafaxine is increased, it can cause decreases in blood pressure. This one's false. The opposite is true. So blood pressure and heart rate may actually increase as the venlafaxine dose increases. The next one. Sertraline might be a good choice for someone with chronic constipation. Certainly true. Sertraline causes the most diarrhea of the SSRIs. With continued use of benzodiazepines, tolerance may develop for sedative properties, but is much less likely for anxiolytic effects. True. Citalopram and sertraline are associated with the fewest drug interactions. True. That's out of the SSRIs. The SSRI with the longest half-life is fluoxetine. Yep, that's true. The washout period is five weeks. Last one, the maximum recommended dose of Ciprolex or escitalopram in the elderly is 10 milligrams per day. True. Okay, I gave you a lot to ponder today, so I'm going to even it out with something lighter. If you listened to the podcast last time, you were probably really impressed by my reenactment of the Canadian Heritage commercials. Well, I think I've got that beat now. Do you remember... <laughs> The commercial about the log driver, the one with the lumberjack man and he danced on the floating logs and he played the accordion and he had a toque on his head. It was on all the time when I was a kid and we used to sing along. I thought about this a few days ago and I can't get the song out of my head. So the next time your anxiety peaks, sing this one. And remember, there are farmers all over this country singing with you. Thank you so much for listening and for all you do. I have never been more proud to be one of you. If you ask any girl from the parish around what pleases her most from her head to her toes, she'll say I'm not sure that it's business of yours. But I do like to waltz with a log rock.